guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining us for what is now episode 158. And we've been podcasting for over three years now, and this is quite an unprecedented episode because Tierra is no longer here, or Tierra is in Melbourne. So she's still around, but she won't be joining us for this episode. So I'm delighted to have Lawrence Grief as a temporary emphasis on temporary co-host. So thanks for joining me today, Lawrence, for the TVD podcast. No problems at all, mate. Thank you very much for having me. And yes, don't worry, dear listener, Tierra will be back. I'm sure there would be rioting in the streets if she were to leave the podcast. So I've got some big shoes today to fill, but I'm sure that I'll try and string together some coherent sentences for the listeners. Yeah, I mean, you're no dietitian, but you still are an allied health professional, I guess. That is true. I eat food. I do train. So at least I've got some of the qualifications that we need for this sort of podcast today. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, it's, uh, it's looking to be a good episode. So I think we'll just uh, head into some Q&As. But before we do, I just want to inform the listener a bit more about yourself. So like, tell them about your bodybuilding journey so far and what you do for work as well. Yeah, so obviously I've had the pleasure of being on as a guest on the TBD podcast and I'm an avid listener. So any time that I get to appear on this show is uh, truly an honor. So thanks very much once again for inviting me on, mate. And yeah, as you mentioned, Jack, so I have a bit of a competitive history myself. I'm a natural bodybuilder from here in Brisbane, Australia. And up until this point, I've done around five and a half to six years of focused training on bodybuilding. And in that time, I've had three competitive seasons the last of which was probably my most successful or well, easily my most, my most successful. Um, I was fortunate enough to snag three overall titles in 2020, which was very special. And at the moment, I'm in the midst of a long improvement season. I've taken some time away in which I've focused on my studies and now this year focusing on my first year of full-time work. And alongside that, just trying to eat a lot of food, lift heavy weight, as you've been reporting in your improvement season updates it's at that point of the off season where you're just ticking the boxes and doing the boring stuff, not too much changes, but it's that effort over time that really adds up. And as you mentioned, as a profession, I'm a physiotherapist. So I practiced at a clinic called Everybody's Physio here in Wellington Point, Brisbane, which is primarily a musculoskeletal clinic, which focuses on a lot of sporting injuries, chronic pain, and that sort of thing, which I absolutely love. Mm. Well, yeah, you definitely fit the criteria for coming on this episode. And I'm sure many of the listeners have either listened to you or at least heard of you before. So I think we'll crack into some questions. And obviously, I've tried to limit these to some that are less nutrition related and uh, a bit more uh, something that we can discuss together. So we'll start off with question number one, which is, if you don't train upper body, will your lower body have potential to be bigger and vice versa? Yeah, I found that that's a really interesting question. And I think the first thing we probably need to think about is maybe overall training volume. And I guess one argument could be that if you are taking away volume from one area of your body, say this case, the lower body, that might give you the ability to handle more volume in the upper body because the overall recovery demands are not as high. With that said, though, I think that in a practical sense, there's still going to be a limit of how much you can grow in a certain body part and there's still going to be a limit of how many sets you can recover from even if you're doing less for another body part just because that overall systemic fatigue is still going to play a part and i think on a practical sense we need to think about like okay take a men's physique competitor at the highest level say on the olympia stage they're still training their lower body 
if there was a way for them to get even bigger upper bodies by neglecting their quads, neglecting their hamstrings altogether, I'm sure that they would have figured that out by now. So I would say probably not. What's your mm-hmm. take on that one, mate? Yeah, I would have to agree. I think definitely the first point that you mentioned makes sense where if you are limiting, like not excluding completely, but limiting, for example, lower body volume, um, then it does give you probably an extra element of recovery capabilities for the upper body. But at the same time, it's no volume is not better than some, um, I think. And I remember back in the day, like I'm not sure if you heard this sort of myth when you first started training, but how people used to say, oh, you need to train lower body to increase your testosterone or something like that, which I think we can, it, it doesn't quite work like that. But I do think that not eliminating a body part completely is, is the way to go. Um, and I think it mainly correlates back to recovery capabilities, um, especially with the lower body movements being uh, some of the most demanding. Yeah, well, I guess I'll put it back on you. Like if you have a men's physique client who starts with you and they say, Jack, my dream is men's physique. I want to spend my life in board shorts. I don't have any interest in training legs. Let's just focus on what we need to train. What would your rationale be to them as to why you would want to include at least some lower body training? Mm. Well, I think lower body training is is great. Why, or I guess wrapping it back around to you, like probably from an injury prevention standpoint as well, it's probably a good idea to incorporate some lower body training, potentially so imbalances and the like, but also from a standpoint of a lot of lower body movements are also indirectly going to target the upper body as well. For like, for example, the Romanian deadlift or the conventional deadlift as well. So there's also a nice carryover there between lower body movements are the hardest movements. If you can train hard at them, you're probably going to be able to train hard at the upper body movements quite easily as well. Yeah, I've also heard the argument that when you consider your overall expenditure throughout the week, then it makes more sense to train lower body because you're going to be burning a lot of calories and what so have you. But I guess when we look at some of the evidence around how much calories we actually burn whilst weight training, maybe it's not as big of a factor. Obviously, you being the authority on stuff like that, what would your take be as that as an argument? Mm. Yeah, I don't know the objective values themselves, but the amount of, like, let's say you gain a kilo of muscle, the amount of extra food you need to eat per day is very, very insignificant. Yeah, no, perfect. That makes sense. So I think we're, uh, we can move on to the next question. Probably the consensus with that first one was um, yes, but not to a considerably significant extent. Um, I personally would... If someone was a men's physique athlete, I usually do have them uh, doing one lower body session a week for the purpose of allowing more recovery for their upper body. Yeah, I think that's perfectly sound reasoning, you know, still incorporating some, but still keeping in mind what are the priorities for that athlete. Mm, For sure. So, okay. Next question is, is super compensation from a deload real science or bro science? I think that, I think we have to consider in which realm we're talking about, because I think that if you're working at the highest intensity possible, and when we use that word intensity, I know that gets thrown a lot around a lot, but if you think about the definition of the word intensity in like a sports science and sports performance capacity, that doesn't actually refer to effort, despite what a lot of people think, you know, they'll say, oh, he trains with really good intensity but they mean that he trains hard they, or she trains with a lot of effort. You know what I mean? But if you're talking about a lift that has the highest intensity, that actually means 
like a 1RM. A 1RM is technically, in a sports science sense, the most intense thing that somebody can do in the gym. So if we're talking about it in a powerlifting sense, that's where I think all the tapers and the way that you prepare for a meet, those things are going to be a lot more important for that deload and for the way that powerlifters tend to back off their training in preparation to have this compensation or super compensation effect mm-hmm. when they do go into their competitions. Obviously the intricacies of that are far outside of my expertise as I've never dabbled in powerlifting or coached it in any way. I think as a bodybuilder for a deload, are we really looking for a super compensation? Are we really looking to come back the following week and hit PRs straight away? No, the purpose of the deload is to drop off some fatigue whilst trying to maintain some form of fitness. That's why we still go in and train a little bit. So I don't think it's as much of a worry for bodybuilders, Mm. but certainly for other sports that are a lot more performance-based, I think there is rationale to have a more structured deload in order to potentiate greater performance in the following week. Mm, I would definitely agree. And we can even relate that to bodybuilding in a sense, like peak week, like we, we don't train especially difficult uh, with high, high intensity in peak week for that reason to look better. Um, but it's interesting that you took away the performance element from the super compensation, because I was thinking more along the lines of muscle gain, like, is there a super compensation effect for muscle gain? But I, the short answer is I wouldn't particularly know for that. And I think from a performance element, as you said, like typically our performance um, is going to be um, potentially a little bit higher, not necessarily the first week after a deload, but for the weeks following, because we're we're reducing fatigue. um, And therefore, if we're able to train more effectively after a deload, then sure, we probably are going to be able to get more muscle as a result of that. Yeah, and the performance, just touching that on that again, I think... I would be interested to see if you would agree. I almost think that for certain movements, that first session back after the deload, it almost feels like your performance is not at 100% of maybe where you left off the week prior. I know for me that squatting movements and pressing movements, which for me take a little bit more skill and a little bit more cognitive capacity, those definitely take me one or two weeks to hit my stride again after the deload. Are you similar? Yeah, I definitely am. And I, we've spoken about this in the past before, I think. And I, I, it's probably improved as of late. And I think that's actually a testament to me getting better at the movement itself because I've kind of greased those gears a little bit better of the technical execution and the neurological adaptation sort of side of things. Whereas previously, like even a couple of years ago, I wasn't quite as efficient or good at the movement and therefore I had to take a couple of weeks coming back um not to say that you aren't as good but it might just be coincidence yeah and are you still taking a full four or five days off when you deload I uh, that's been what I've been doing as of late yeah I'll either take uh a few days off in a row like four or five or I'll go in and do some pumpy sessions with the to be honest the only reason of that is actually to kind of grease the groove of a few of those major movements um, and also to prevent DOMS upon coming back or excessive DOMS um, or I'll do some devolume sessions um, at regular intensity but basically one set of volume. Yeah because that's what we've been doing a little bit more recently as well like 
in the sixth week of the training block, we'll take a D volume week or a taper week where we'll just drop a set off everything. So for a lot of the lower body movements, that does mean only doing one working set, which I really like because it feels like you start to kickstart a little bit of that recovery whilst still keeping the intensity very high. Mm. And then after that, you jump into the deload and really just wash away that fatigue and then you're ready to go for the following week. But I guess for my deloads, I still do go in for each session, but I just reduce the intensity to 70% of whatever I used mm. the week prior. And for me, I like that because it keeps my normal routine. I do agree with you from a Dom's perspective of just actually getting there in training and moving around, promoting some blood flow. I tend to find that actually helps to mitigate the soreness that you have that first week back because it's not like you're jumping into something that's completely new after having a week off and i also do think yes from a t from a technique perspective in terms of maintaining the freshness of those neurological adaptations i think it is favorable for sure mm. yeah i think my only critique really of the devolume approach which aj um is a proponent of is sometimes I'm just so neurologically and see it, my CNS is just battered by the end of a block that I genuinely have no interest of even doing one set at full intensity. I'd rather just uh, tone down the intensity like you do and even do regular volume or slightly less volume um, and give my CNS a bit of a break. Yeah, definitely. I guess when you get to the point where we're at, which you and I often speak about, it gets to that point where the weights do scare you a little bit each week. It's a bit daunting when you look at the logbook and see the work that you have to get done. So that I also think is a big reason why I've stuck to my approach with the deloads because it's five days and five sessions where I'm not feeling nervous at all. I'm not feeling daunted at all. It's as much as a psychological break as it is a physical break. Like I go in there I listen to a podcast the whole time, which I don't normally do whilst training. And maybe I just move TV around. Podcast. Maybe if anything could fire me up, it would be that uh, sweet intro music. But oh, yeah, yeah I, I just go in, I move around a little bit. It's a session where I'll probably allow myself to chat a little bit more between sets, look at my phone a little bit. And it's a good reset because in the first few days of that deload, I'm so grateful because I'm absolutely smashed from six weeks of hard training and then by the time I get to the tail end of that week, I'm bored and I'm itching to go and I'm just chomping at the bit to get after a new training block, which for me is absolutely perfect. And I think for most people, that's how you want to round out a deload. Yeah, I think the, the consensus, a lot of people overcomplicate it. Like ultimately you want to be recovered. You want to be ready to train again and eager to train again. It's quite simple. Yeah, yeah. completely agree with that, mate. Mm. Cool. So we'll head into some more lighthearted, lighthearted questions, which I'm looking forward to. Um, the first one is... Would you rather give up caffeine or creatine? That's such an interesting question because I guess we know that creatine is really the gold standard of sports supplements from a research perspective of helping not only with strength, but long-term with hypertrophy as well. But it's not a quote-unquote feel supplement. You can't mm -hmm. feel when you've had creatine. And I was actually thinking about this the other day. Like we all take creatine as a no-brainer. You know, it's something that we just do, but... I can't say that I know that my progress would have been any different from not mm. taking it because I've just always taken it and I'm just trusting the science and trusting the people that stand by it and just assuming that it works. But caffeine is something that you can acutely feel in the moment that it is doing something. So that's a really tough one. Are I you think... a coffee fan though or a tea fan? 
look, I'll have one coffee a day, you know, in the morning, if it's a rest day, I'll have a coffee because generally if I'm having a caffeinated beverage prior to training, such as a pre-workout, which one might purchase at PowerSoft's Cleveland, might I add, then I won't have a coffee in the morning because I don't want to overdo it for the day. So it's only really on a rest day that I'll have a coffee and it'll only be one really. So I think I could pretty easily go without that, but I do like having a caffeinated pre-workout prior to some big sessions. So look, I think in the grand scheme of things, maybe creatine is having a couple of percent benefits. I reckon I'm going to go caffeine on this one. I'm keeping caffeine. And although creatine is the goat of sports supplements, I'm going to say that I'm doing enough recovery wise and training wise. So caffeine it is. What about you? Yeah, I think that was a strong rationale. And I would have to go for caffeine as well uh, for a, I don't know. I'd rather give up creatine than caffeine is my answer. And because yeah, like we've been taking creatine for so long. I've been taking it since 2011, I think, and I haven't stopped. So that's 11 years. <laughs> and I don't even know if I'd notice a difference if I took it out. Like we kind of just get told that it's uh, a great performance enhancing supplement, which, which we know it is. But caffeine does have those extra perks of taste great. I, do, I am a fan of coffee in the morning. Um, I'm a fan of pre-workout and you can notice those acute effects and it has a nice strong placebo effect as well. Whereas I don't think creatine has a very strong placebo effect either. No, like certainly not. I guess in some of the research that they've even done where they give people like performance enhancing drugs as a placebo, like they're not actually taking anything, but people see a huge increase. I wonder if there would be anything like that with creatine, but I don't think so because, you know, Creatine's great, but if you were to put two twins in a study, optimize everything and see one taking creatine, one not taking creatine, who would come out in the end? Uh, I just don't know if all the other variables were being nailed. I don't know if it would be that much of a difference. Look, I still am a huge proponent of it. I think you know most humans should be taking it because I think there's a lot of benefit. But like you said, that acute effect that you get from caffeine, I think is a much more potent ergogenic aid to actually increase your performance and you know that morning coffee i know that you're uh, quite a fan of it for some gastrointestinal reasons as well so <laughs> you've got to remember you may be saying goodbye to a few of those morning bowel mm. movements if the caffeine's not there oh that gut health yeah well i think that's a, a fair answer from both of us and we'll move on to the next question which says dream lineup you want to stand up against in 2023 top five so I mean, if it was the dream, wouldn't you pick like four people who have just got no business being up there and you can just come away with the win? I think it's meant to be interpreted in a more like camaraderie or camaraderie sense. So like for those who don't know, Lawrence and I are both aiming to compete season B 2023. So I guess you can, you know, I mean, you don't have to, there's no pressure, but you could list me as one of those top five if you wanted to. Yeah, no, I do agree. From a friendship standpoint, we'll think of it as that way. But the other thing we need to consider is that what stage are we standing on? Are we standing on ICN, WNBF? Because that could open the doors for some international bodybuilders to be standing yeah. next to us. So. I think it's a hypothetical stage. So it could be any season, could be any stage. Okay, interesting. So I guess, although it is hypothetical, it does need to make some sense. So... I think we'll do WNBF Worlds because that gives us a few options. 
but we also can't include any pros because you mm. or I don't yet have our pro cards. So in a hypothetical amateur WNBF competition, the top five, Lawrence Grief, Jack Radford-Smith, can't not have AJ Morris in there, although he would probably em- definitely embarrass us both from the rear shots. <laughs> well, I think Keith my top West, three. yeah, my because he's not yet a WNBF pro, although he is a DFAC pro. Mm. And then as a fifth option, let's throw in Leroy Rollins, our Canadian brother, because he's having a ripper of a season, and I know that he's a really good dude. So we'll throw Leroy in there as well. Yeah, it's a good lineup, very solid, and. I think mine would honestly be quite similar. I We hadn't discussed this set uh, question prior, but I had you, I had myself, I had AJ. He's my coach and it would be cool to stand up against him. And I had Keefe as well, because he's, yes, no longer a W. Well, he is not a WMBF pro yet. Um, yet, I'm sure he will be very soon. And my fifth was actually Jack Thorburn, because I've been following him for a long time and uh, he's competing this year as well. Yeah, that is very true. Thorburn's a good one because he's someone I've been following for a while as well. And I always find him as a fascinating character and someone who I don't think is probably matched for discipline in bodybuilding. Like, obviously, there's a few people who come to mind, yourself being one of them, Brandon Kempter, Thorburn, you know, people who really go above and beyond as far as living the sport where it comes to training, nutrition, recovery, everything. So I think standing alongside someone like that would be cool as well. And I can't wait to see how he goes this year. Obviously, a lot of the UK crew are prepping Thorburn and George Osborne and Keefe. So I'm really looking forward to having a gander across the pond and seeing how they all go. Yeah, especially since I I don't think Jack's competed since 2017. So a very, very solid offseason from him. And I mean, his quad density especially is just uh, hard to match. Uh, for sure, especially from an amateur. So yeah, I'm certainly looking forward because we know he's going to bring that trademark conditioning. So it's going to be cool to see what he can bring to the stage. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know, hypothetically, could you and I enter a UK DFBA comp and go and compete in the British titles or something like that? Would that even be allowed? I think so. Yeah, I mean, this is what I always say, but ultimately it's a business. So uh, they want to make money. I think we'd probably have to do the qualifiers and then obviously make our way to the uh to the british title i think i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure of how it works but i'm assuming it's similar to icn where you do the uh, the state or regional show and then you qualify for nationals yeah but i guess those worlds mate that's the huge goal because the WMBF worlds i think is truly a world titles you know if i look back on my 2018 season yes technically i competed at the icn worlds on the gold coast but there weren't that many international competitors. Mm -hmm. The overall standard wasn't extremely high. Yes. The overall winners and the pro show was really impressive, but in my eyes, it's not necessarily like a true world title where you're getting a very good representation from a lot of very competitive bodybuilders across the world. So WMBF does seem to be that draw card where a lot of the elite bodybuilders circle that one on the calendar, regardless of where they are in the world. So I think if you can get up on that stage even getting there is an achievement, but being able to hold your own there, I think would be really special. Mm. Yeah, well, fingers crossed we'll be making it there next year. Definitely, mate. I look forward to it. Great. So this is a particularly relevant question for you uh, as of late. So this one says, cream of wheat or cream of rice? 
Now, you're right. It is very relevant. And I had my second bowl of cream of wheat today. And I think I did a bit better because I combined the ingredients a bit better. It was a lot smoother. And for as good as it is, and for as much as respect I have for you, I still think the cream of rice is a little bit better. Mm. Yeah, I'm not surprised by your answer. Why do you think that? Do you think I'm preparing it wrong? Or do you think it's just me setting my ways? I think you're just your typical bodybuilder seven new ways and you haven't had long enough to come across to my way of doing things yet. The biggest issue that I think I still have is the fact that following your recipe on YouTube, might I add, mm-hmm. it's a lot of food. Like it's a huge bowl. And maybe it's just because I'm peak off season where I'm not exactly hungry for any meals. I think maybe it was just the sheer amount of food that I had to get through was a little bit daunting whereas if i look at how much cream of rice i would have to make it's a little bit less food overall for similar macros Mm. so i will admit that in a deficit maybe my mind is a little bit different but i think overall taste and texture i'm still gonna slightly give it to the cream of rice i will admit though that for the overall ease of eating when i have to have cream of rice because i don't mix the whey in because for some reason it just like obliterates the cream of rice I have to have the protein sauce on a side, which is not as convenient, but with the cream of wheat, you can mix the whey in. So that does have advantages there. Yeah, it's, I have tried cream of rice, but then again, I did mix it with whey. So maybe I, I'm not on a fair playing field to judge it at the moment. I was meaning to ask you as well, because the one question I had from your recipe on the YouTube channel is that. I think I was doing it correctly as I would add the whey, mix it with the flour, put the water in and then put it in the microwave. And as I was doing that, I thought, isn't there a bit of a myth? I don't know if it's pseudoscience that microwaving the whey protein, quote unquote, denatures it. I don't even know if that's the correct word, but is there anything about the whey being in the microwave that affects the protein at all? No, there's not. Analogy I'd give would be like cooking an egg. You don't, you don't denature the protein from cooking an egg. Um, Did you blend it out of interest? I actually tried to use the stick blender, but the rotation on our stick blender was slower than what I could probably do with my hands. So it was an absolute joke, but I got one of those blenders with the two arms kind Mm -hmm. of going back and forth. So I would hit that with a bit of a blitz, get it going. And then just in order to get the last little chunks of the corner, I would actually go through and hand whisk it. I'm old school, mate. You know how it is. So get in there with the hand whisk, smooth it out a little bit. And then about three goes in the microwave and got it pretty good. The smell is great as well. Cause it's like, Oh wow. I'm about to eat like a cake or something like that. And I'm going to persist. I'm going to play around with a few more batches, but I think I'm going to bring down my water quantity a little bit just so that it's not as much volume. But I will say the cream of wheat throw in a bit of the 95% dark chalk and a few blueberries is a very good time taste wise. Just a lot of food. Yeah, it is. And I guess, to be fair, I was in prep at the time of making that video. So I was certainly uh, looking forward to a big bowl of cream of wheat. And I also don't have cream of wheat now in my off season. For that reason, it's too filling. Yeah, exactly. A little bit of a question off to the side, mate. But what mm. is the strangest prep diet type food that you've had? Because I'll kick off. I remember in the 2018 prep, I was making myself rice cakes 
and I would put a scoop of whey into a bowl and add some water to it and mix it up and make this like whey paste. And then I would put that onto the rice cakes and looking back, I'm like, holy moly, Lawrence, that is just no way to live. Yeah, it's certainly a prep food, that's for sure. Uh, almost as bad as the cucumber and uh, sweeter now that some people have. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my weirdest would probably be even more diet food than that, I would say. I used to uh, get a, a heap of frozen broccoli. This was back in my first prep, I might disclaim. Uh, get a heap of frozen broccoli, get some cognac noodles and uh, microwave them both together and then get some scissors and chop it all up into little pieces and then I'll mix tuna with it. That would be my lunch. <laughs> that sounds so grim. But at the time, you would have been like, yeah, this is sick. Yeah, I would look forward to it every day. So, yeah, it goes to show the uh, the extremes of, of what being lean can do to your brain. Yeah. Didn't Tierra buy like a metric ton of cognac noodles and then you guys had to just throw them all out in the end? Yeah, she bought... Uh, there's this uh, discount fruit place down the road and they had like cognac noodles for a dollar per packet, which is absurdly cheap. So she bought, she like literally bought a hundred packets of them and used maybe five or six. <laughs> and then uh, unfortunately they expired or maybe fortunately they expired. So anyway, we'll get to the next question. And this one says sort of related to what we just spoke about, but experiences with post-show recovery slash reverse dieting. So you've done three prep, preps now, so you're a good one to ask about this. Mm. Yeah, I guess mine is a bit interesting. In my first contest prep, I was very meticulous on the reverse. Very straightforward. I think even at that point, we were probably even doing a bit more of a reverse diet rather than a cover diet. We were quite gradual with the increments. And whilst that created a pretty good look being eight weeks later, still looking fairly lean, feeling really full in the gym. And whilst that was cool, it did also mean that when I went to a Thailand on holiday with my family, as you can imagine, the buffet got absolutely smashed on those days. And yeah, I put on like a decent amount of weight when I was over there. So that approach probably wasn't quite ideal because it was a little bit too slow. Um, and then reflecting on my most recent prep, that was actually very interesting because my food focus during the prep itself was lower than it ever was in the previous two contest preps, but that didn't actually make the post-show period any easier, to be honest. I still really struggled some days where I was just kind of like, man, I'm watching the clock. I'm so food focused. And there were a few instances where Gemma and I went to a social event and I'm there at the table again, grabbing another helping of food. And Gemma's kind of looking over at me being like, Lawrence, you need to settle down a bit here. And in my mind, I'm like, no, 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 Gemma, I've, I've trained today. I left a lot of calories for this occasion. Like, don't stress. I've got this sorted. But looking back, like, obviously, yes, I overdid it. And that was at the start a little bit difficult for me to deal with. And I remember having a phone call with Joey, just kind of telling him this, like saying, man, like, what am I doing? This is my third time doing this. I've just had an amazing season. Why is this still so hard? Like, why am I still struggling? And he was just like, you know, mate, it's, it's normal. It's always a hard process. And when you've been lean like that, you're fighting against your body's biological urges. So that was a bit of a learning curve. And I think looking back on it, I was probably a little bit hard on myself in the moment. I think if I zoom out, there were probably only 
one or two occasions where I did overdo it a little bit. Other than that, I was pretty sensible for the most part. I think all things considered, it was a very successful reverse diet process. But yeah, it just goes to show that you can do this thing for a while and it still doesn't necessarily make it a whole lot easier. I think it still has gotten better over time, but definitely still not perfect, even with my third season. Is there anything moving forward, like into your next post-show period that you feel like you might do differently? I think for me, it'll be a matter of probably communicating with people around me a bit more and letting my family and Gemma, my girlfriend in on the situation a bit more and not trying to do it on my own. I think if there were instances where I probably said to Gemma, Hey, I know we're going out tonight. I know we're going to enjoy some food, but you know, if you see me acting weird, pull me aside and have a bit of word and just kind of say, Lawrence, it's okay. The food's going to be there. I know you're hungry, but just kind of be sensible because I think I would have responded well to that at the time, or maybe I wouldn't, who knows, but I think that just communicating, getting a bit more support from the people around me and not just trying to bottle it in because it is something that can be difficult because your relationship with food is just so out of whack by the time you finish your contest prep. So I think talking about it more and that sort of thing will be a good idea. But I also just think that after having a long improvement season like this, where I'm not really hungry for any meals, it does at least show me that I can reflect on times like this and think Lawrence, the food is always going to be there. Your calories are going to get higher one day. You don't need to rush into anything too soon and just be sensible. I think that's pretty much where it comes down to. Yeah, I think definitely once you have a few notches on your belt in terms of uh, this will be coming up to your fourth next year, you can look at it differently compared to being a first-time competitor, especially if you're someone who doesn't quite understand or hasn't been informed about like the biological processes of the, of the body. And I feel like personally for me, I'm a very objective person. Like if I can understand why something is happening, then it's a lot easier for me to manage it. And in the case of our body post-comp, like our body needs to regain weight. It wants to regain weight and therefore like appetite cues are going to go through the roof. Also, we don't have that like super, uh, goal orientated endpoint of like stepping on stage anymore like that's kind of out the window and now we're in like a long off season where we can't kind of think about the stage and be like okay i have to stick to the plan because that stage is is there in a few weeks time so yeah i think for me a similar journey to you as well like i've had two post comp periods now and the first one was basically i didn't gain enough weight and i actually ended up getting injured uh two or three months after my uh post-show period so like i was only i competed at 76 and i got injured at 78 and i basically then maintained between 78 and 80 for like six months which was pretty horrible looking back on it and it's probably why i didn't recover that well from the injury or didn't recover quickly enough and yeah that kind of led me into um then the off season then i i slowly recovered and got better but yeah not a great uh, post-show period for me to be honest and the next time around was a lot better um, so this was back in May of 2021 and I just kind of took the opposite approach like I felt so I mean everyone feels bad by the end of prep but I felt very uh, very very low energy uh, very low EA and I just wanted to gain some weight quickly and feel better again that was the main motivation behind me and my post-show period. So I was pretty assertive. I think I got, I, I went from like 76 back to 80 
in probably like six weeks, which is pretty rapid, but I felt a lot better for it. And it allowed me to get into the groove of the off season much more rapidly. Yeah. And I remember looking at some of your days of eating, you gave yourself that quote unquote, like day off where you mm. just ate whatever you want. And it was obviously a very high calorie day, but it was still quite calculated and it was very intentional and very purposeful. Did you ever have instances where you did lose a bit of control or where you thought, oh no, like I've maybe gone overboard there a little bit, or I know that you're quite a measured and quite an even keel guy. So do you think your education and your experience helped with mitigating that? Yeah, I, I think it's also because I've had uh, binge eating in the past. So I know what it feels like to lose control and this, I didn't want that to happen. Like the last time I binge ate was probably in 2014 or 15. And I, because that happened back then, I can regulate that a lot more. And it also helps that I have Tara here, um, who is the same as me. And also I'm just able to resist temptation quite well in general. And I think actively having that cheat day, because that's kind of what it is, what it was, that kind of allowed me to be like, okay, I've had the cheat day. Like I don't, don't need anything else. Like I can, I can stick within my normal realm of macros and calories. And, um, and then eventually as my food focus went down and down, um, I was able to incorporate things like intuitive eating. And like, if my parents wanted to go out for a meal with me, I'll be able to do that quite easily, which um, is reassuring to have that skill. Yeah. And I've noticed that you and Tierra haven't really been doing the quote unquote rest day roasts mm. this off season. I know that Tierra has just gone through a dieting phase and obviously she wouldn't be partaking in those slightly off plan meals or slightly more flexible meals. Is there a reason why you guys haven't been doing that as much this year? Yeah. Good question. I think from my end, like sim maybe similar to you, I'm just not very food focused at the moment. So I just honestly don't mind if we have them or not. And I don't want to speak for Tierra, but I can eat a lot more food than Tierra. And if Tierra tries to eat the same amount of food as me at dinner, then that'll result in uh, more weight gain for Tierra, which isn't always as conducive for uh, our, our goals. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Hey, like often when couples compete together, you see the post-show meals and going out for food and stuff. And I was even reflecting on this myself, like in the off season, if I am going out to dinner with friends or family, it is no drama at all for me to put aside a thousand calories for dinner. But a smaller female that might only be working up to two and a half thousand calories in their off season, they can't do that as easily. And mm. that doesn't necessarily mean there's like male and female options on the dinner table. You know, they're all still quite big calorie dense meals when you go out for dinner. So it's an interesting thing to consider, you know, trying to keep up with, someone is not always going to be feasible. And like you said, if your goals are important to you, it might not be the best thing for you at that time. Mm, for sure. Yeah. Like Tierra has been dieting, as you said, and, and she's been eating, I don't know the exact number, like 14, 1500 calories a day. And my post-workout meal is 1400 calories. So it's a, it's a good representation of, of how things work sometimes. So uh, let's do one more question and actually, and then we'll end with our final question, which I'll, I'll be springing on you today. I haven't thought of anything yet either. So we'll see how we go. But this second last question says, current favorite gym music? Great question. I'm also an absolute fiend to hear about what people listen to in the gym. So I'm probably a little bit different to most 
like I don't really listen to heavy rock or heavy metal or things that are too aggressive in the gym. I tend to resonate with songs that draw out a bit of emotion, mm. I think, or particularly hip hop songs that have lyrics that I really resonate with or that I find really cool. So as I'm getting ready for a top set, that's pretty much the only time the music really does matter. You know, once I get past the main squatting or hack movement, the main deadlift, the main press, I'm kind of happy just for whatever's in my playlist to go. But I will be selective a little bit more for those main lifts of the day. So I'll start off like as I'm getting closer to the top set and I'm progressing the warm ups, I'll normally put on a track that is a little bit heavy on the emotional side to start to get those feelings swelling up. And at the moment, that's probably a song called Open Your Eyes by Snow Patrol. Absolutely mm -hmm. stunning song. Love that. And I'll then I'll give it a try. Yeah, it's a belter, mate. Get into it. And then the other one is actually a worship song I've been listening to lately, which is called Oceans um, by Hillsong. So those two are probably the main ones that I'll put on as I'm getting ready for that top set. And then when the top set is here, that's where I'll go for something a little bit more upbeat, a little bit more aggressive, so that I can just let it have it. And I think at the moment for me, the top two at the moment would be Industry Baby by mm. Lil Nas and Jack Harlow. That is an absolute track. Mm, and it's then it's a great one. And then the other one would be a song called XXX by Kendrick Lamar and U2. That's from his most recent album, Damn. And that is a great song as well. When it hits its stride, it really gets you going. So those would probably be my main ones at the moment. What about yeah, you? Well, I only know one of those four songs, but the one I do know is it's a good one. So I'll have to try the other ones out. So yeah, I'm, I guess I'm similar to you. Like the, the, the music matters to me most when I'm doing that top set, like when I'm doing RDLs or, or squats or the, the first pressing movement. And then after that, I'll chuck on something just random or chuck on shuffle and go from there. I'm also the sort of person who will literally listen to something until it's completely ruined for everyone around me. I won't care. Like Tierra is very rapidly sick of whatever I'm listening to because it'll be on repeat. And are you someone who has a gym playlist or do you just listen to whatever? I have multiple playlists uh, for the gym, uh, different genres. So I have my, I have my top set playlist, but that's basically just metal and, and rock and some punk. And then I have, uh, I actually have a hardstyle playlist, which I started collating in, in 2014 when I used to listen to a lot of hardstyle and I occasionally listen to some hardstyle now. Um, and then I also have like a pump playlist, which is like drum and bass and that sort of stuff. But probably more often than not, I'll chuck on the, uh, the top set playlist, which is like metal um, and rock. And probably my, my go-to at the moment is actually um, a little bit of a uh, guilty pleasure. It's um, Machine Gun Kelly's new album. Yeah, which is, it's a little bit more like pop punk, but I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's good. Mate, I'm glad you said that because one of my guilty pleasures that's in my playlist for the gym at the moment is his big hit, which was My Ex Best Friend. Mm, Mate, it's, a good it's one an with absolute belter. I, that gets me up and about. I'll definitely throw that on for a top set. Absolutely. Mm. Once you get to the end of the workout though, and you're starting to wind things down, will you shift to something a bit more mellow? Because I know for myself personally, if I've had like a really close overreaching session where I've needed to get very aroused then 
I'll try and simmer things down a little bit whilst I train the smaller muscle groups, like while I'm finishing off with calves and abs and stuff, you know, throw on a little bit Ariana Grande, get things settled down a little bit. Do you have a similar go-to for that? Uh, yeah, I will just chuck on like another one of my playlists. Like uh, it's quite an original name. It's just called Chill, um, kind of says what it means. And yeah, I'll chuck on some of those songs maybe or chuck on some drum and bass, which is a bit more light compared to someone screaming in your ears. Yeah, I never could get around to screamo, mate. I don't know how people do that. So I'll have to, perhaps in another life, I'll get into that sort of music. What about the drum and bass, like Pendulum or some of those other ones? You're going to have to give me a few more options there, mate. <laughs> I have not understood a word that you've said there. So is drum and bass like a genre or is that a... Yeah, it's like a genre. It's electronic. Um, it's kind of difficult to describe. Unfortunately, they don't always have singing, so I, I couldn't perform any lyrics for you. Uh, okay, so basically anything that doesn't have lyrics in it, apart from a few exceptions, will be a no-go for my gym work. So I think the only songs that I have in my gym playlist with no lyrics are a couple of Hans Zimmer belters, such as Actually, that's something from we... Inception. Oh, baby, that's huge. Mm. That's something that I we haven't mentioned. It, or that I didn't mention is like Hans Zimmer or some of those other uh, theatrical scores, which I will sometimes listen to. But mainly in prep, to be honest, when I, I sometimes find in prep like too much external input from music kind of throws me off and I'll actually put on like Hans Zimmer or like a Howard Shaw, Lord of the Rings sort of uh, soundtrack or something. Yeah, and I actually have to give credit to your coach AJ for this one. He often, he shared a song once called Headlines from The Crown, which is mm -hmm. the Netflix show about the royal family and I don't watch it, but... I thought oh, I'll give that a listen and that's a belter as well. So very, very good song. Um, and funny enough, the is another song in my playlist called Headlines, which is by Drake. And I actually start every single session with that song. So mm. e every year when I get my Spotify stats, I'm not really surprised because lo and behold, the most listened to song is Headlines by Drake because I'll start every training session with that one. Yeah, wow. Well, my number one artist always seems to be Eminem somehow. He always seems to return to the top. Very authentic of me, but I'm hoping to change that this year. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, mate, branch out. Bit of Doja Cat, you know, try <laughs> something a bit spicier. Yeah, some Ariana Grande maybe. So let's uh, finish with our TBD question, which is something that you learned this week. And I'll let you go first. Yeah, so this is a bit of a niche pool. And if any of the listeners are NBA fans, they'll probably appreciate it. If not, I apologize, but at least you'll still learn something. So in the NBA, they talk about this thing called two-way contracts. And I've been a fan of the NBA for a very long time. So I've always heard this phrase, two-way contracts, two-way contracts, but I've never actually known what it's meant. And in the previous week, there was a rule that got changed and it was actually pertaining to a player on my team. And I thought, okay, I actually need to know what this means. So I looked it up and a two-way contract is a contract that a player signs that allows them to play for the NBA team and their G League affiliate. So there's a league just under the NBA, which is more of a development league. And if you sign a two-way deal with a team, that means that you can play in that development league but also play in the actual NBA team. So you can go between the two and it's mostly rookie players or players that are just on the verge of being able to really solidify a spot on an NBA roster. So 
that's what I learned this week. And I'm sure Joey Cantlin would be horrified that I didn't know that already. But hey, we all need to learn something each week. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't know that either. And it makes sense once you say it that a rookie player would have to, they might not get a lot of game time with the NBA. They might have to continue playing with the, the lower end team. Yeah, so it's been good to learn um, and, you know, go the Brooklyn when the playoffs at the moment. So let's go. If it was possible to know negative amount about the NBA, that would be me. Do you follow any sport other than bodybuilding? Like any ball sport? Because I know you used to play football, but do you follow like English Premier League or anything like that? I can't say I do. I think the most recent football news that I know about is uh, Cristiano Ronaldo return to the EPL. But that's about it. Hey, at least it's something, mate. At least it's something. <laughs> so uh, something I learned was something quite ingenious by Lawrence, in fact, where he puts or he elevates his computer screen in these podcasts uh, to be able to get a clearer view of himself and not have our big uh, black mics obscuring our vision. Yeah, mate, absolutely. It's, it's from a move of complete vanity. And I just would like to see my face. I, of course, haven't been looking at you this entire time. I've been looking at myself in the top right. And I just wanted to be a little bit more presentable for my own eyes. And I must admit, this is the second podcast I've recorded today. And I didn't even use that trick for the first one. I was leaning off to the side to try and see what my guest was saying. And it only occurred to me when we were about to jump on that, hey, I have a little box that I can put this laptop on in order to make the visual experience a little bit more appealing. Mm. very good well unfortunately tbg doesn't do any youtube podcast segments but maybe that might happen and i think this episode went so well that maybe we'll have to turn it into something more concrete in the future who knows yeah look mate who knows we might just have to sit around and do this a little bit more often i think that would be wonderful mm. well thank you again for coming on the podcast i'm sure that everyone had a great time and guys if you enjoyed the episode you know the drill you can repost it onto your Instagram story, tag myself, tag TBD, tag Lawrence as well. You can even tag Sierra while you're at it to kind of rub it in. And we'll uh, catch you next week without Lawrence. Thanks very much for having me on, mate. Always fun.